Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Tonight, our guest will be Craig Whaley, who is the Executive Director of Life Ring, and Dee Dee Stout, who is the author of uh, Coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming. I'm your host. My name is Kenneth Anderson. Before uh, we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug here for our organization. We are the HAMS Harm Reduction Network. We are a free-of-charge support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our website is hamsnetwork.org, and we have a book out. It's called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon.com. We're still waiting for our first guest to call in, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about our program while I'm waiting for our first guest to call in. Um, Hams... The letters HAMS, H-A-M-S, stand for Harm Reduction, Abstinence from Alcohol, and Moderate Drinking Support. As I said, we're a support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking, from reduced drinking to safer drinking to quitting altogether. We have 17 elements in our program. We call them elements and not steps because all of them are optional and they can be done in any order. Now... The first element of HAMS is uh, to do a cost-benefit analysis of your drinking. We uh, recommend that people uh, write this down, uh, do it in writing, write down the pros and cons of your drinking habits as they are currently, and then what kind of choice do you, what kind of behavioral change do you want to make? Do you want to quit? You can write down the pros and cons of quitting drinking. Or if you want to reduce drinking, you can write down the pros and cons of reduced drinking. So doing a written pro and con list of drinking as you are now and as the change you will make, this is one of the possible elements that you can do in the HAMS program. Uh, number two, we uh, ask people to choose a drinking goal. Their drinking goal can be safer drinking, reduced drinking, or quitting. You can use the cost-benefit analysis to help you decide what is the best drinking goal for you. Number three is learn about risk ranking and rank your risks. In harm reduction, we believe that some harms are worse than others and that it's more important to try and eliminate the most harmful behaviors first. And uh, so we suggest that people write down a list of the possible harmful behaviors that they engage in when they drink alcohol. Do you drink and drive? Do you drink and get into fights in bars? Do you drink and have uh, unsafe sex with uh, strangers? Do you do drunk dialing? Uh, Write down whatever unsafe behavior you might be engaging in when you drink too much alcohol and then assign a rank. The ones that you think are the worst are the ones that you should work on the hardest. And uh, so rank your risks and uh, try to work on eliminating the worst risks first. Number four, learn about the HAMS tools and strategies for changing your drinking. We have uh, many, many tools that our members have contributed to to us over time. As we've been running the program for the last four years, since 2007, we've had an email group and people write in things that they do that help them to drink less or help them to change their drinking in ways they want to change it. Um, One tool, for example, some people want to quit drinking, find a marijuana maintenance is a tool that they can use to stop drinking completely, especially for people who suffer from major withdrawal symptoms, people who have uh, damaged liver, medical marijuana 
can be a much safer substitute for alcohol. Um, other tools are uh, finding ways to do uh, abstinence time. Eating before you drink is a good tool, but it stops you from getting high, getting rapid spikes in your blood alcohol content. And when people get rapid spiking in their blood alcohol content, this tends to lead to blacking out and other difficulties. Um, so eating before you drink is another good tool. Um, number five, we uh, suggest that people can make a written plan to achieve their drinking goals. Uh, many, of you, many of our members are on the email list, and they make a written plan, and they send it in for the other members to look at who are on the list. Number six, use alcohol-free time to reset your drinking habits. Um, sometimes people have been drinking every day for a long time. They haven't had uh, one alcohol-free day for months or years, and even doing one alcohol-free day can give people a great sense of accomplishment and uh, can really help them get started. If you can do one day, you can do more than one day. Sometimes after people do their first day, they want to do a week, they want to do two weeks, they want to do a month. If you do a month of abstinence from alcohol, it gives you a chance to encounter every situation where you might have drank before and uh, gives you an opportunity to develop strategies to deal with these situations where you used to drink. So uh, we suggest that uh, having some alcohol-free time is a really good strategy to help people to change their drinking habits. Um, number seven, learn how to cope without relying on booze. New coping mechanisms are very important. Lots of people rely on alcohol as a coping mechanism to deal with things like stress or depression, anxiety, social phobia. One of the, the basic tenets of harm reduction is that you don't take away the coping mechanism that people need to use to cope with things before they have something new to put in its place. So we suggest people start to learn new techniques to cope with anxiety. There are cognitive behavioral strategies to cope with anxiety and depression. There are things from dialectal behavioral therapy that also will help you. There are many coping skills and strategies that you can learn to deal with situations where you used to rely on alcohol. And once you get the new ones in place, then you don't have to rely on alcohol anymore. Um, number eight, we suggest that people learn to, uh, that people make, take steps to address the outside issues that affect their drinking, that lead them to drink. For example, that there are financial issues, issues of health, mental health issues, sexual issues. Um, lots of people drink because they're poor, and it's a, it's a cheap high, and it's a cheap way to escape the problems of being poor. They, to deal with the fact they're unemployed. It doesn't help a lot to spend your money on the alcohol when you're still poor, um, but it, it is a way to cope. And uh, so we think that, you know, all these outside issues, such as your financial health, your sexual health, your mental health, your physical health, your social health, all of these are essential issues, and you need to get these needs met. And once you get them met, you will have an easier time to change your drinking habits for the better and to have a reduced drinking goal or to accomplish your goal of quitting drinking. Um, number nine is to learn how to have fun without relying on alcohol because lots of people, uh, they use alcohol to uh, have fun and they can't think of ways to have fun without alcohol. 
But there are always lots of things that are fun to do that you can do without uh, alcohol. Some people like to do knitting. I like the New York Times crossword puzzle. Some people like to do exercise. All of these are not very compatible with uh, being intoxicated, and uh, they can be great ways to learn how to have fun without drinking. And number 10, learn how to believe in yourself because uh, the more that you believe in yourself, the easier it is to change. Uh, Albert Bandura is a researcher who has studied self-efficacy and studies, clinical studies show that people that believe that they are capable of changing are the ones who accomplish the change. People who can't believe in themselves um, are the ones that have the most difficult time changing. You don't need to rely on an outside power, some higher power that's outside yourself. What you need to do is... Uh, Realize that you have strengths, develop your strengths, believe in yourself, believe that you are capable of making a change. Believe if you haven't had a day that was alcohol-free for a long time. Believe that you can do it. Um, tell, tell, uh, tell yourself you can do it, and if you believe in yourself, you will be able to do it. Number 11, charting. Use a chart to plan and track your drinks and drinking behaviors day by day. This is a very helpful tool um, first, one of the things that you need to learn how to do is you need to learn what a standard drink is. And a standard drink is uh, one 12-ounce beer at 5% alcohol or a 5-ounce glass of wine at 12% alcohol or a 1.5-ounce shot of 40% uh, 80-proof uh, hard liquor. These are standard drinks, and you should learn how to measure standard drinks Use a measuring cup. If you need to use a measuring cup, go ahead and use it. But uh, write down the number of standard drinks that you consume each day. And tracking is a tool that people report. Once they start tracking, they become conscious. Even without trying to cut down, the amount that they are drinking does cut down. And people find this very helpful. People can also use a chart to... Plan what you want to drink each day. You can plan to have an alcohol-free day. Write down zero drinks for that day. Write down one drink for one day. Maybe you want to get intoxicated one day. You want to have 17 drinks, and you write down 17 drinks. But it's okay. It's good to plan. You want to plan your drinking so that you're safe. Maybe you want to drink at home. If you've had trouble getting in trouble, when you drink outside, drinking at home can be a safer way to drink sometimes. But uh, you can get a calendar and uh, plan your drinking and track your drinking or you can also uh, print out one of the charts that we have online or in our book you can make copies of the chart we have in our book we have sample charts you can use uh, to uh, plan and track track your drinks and drinking behaviors in uh, number 12 evaluate evaluate your progress evaluate your progress honestly report struggles revise plans or goals as needed um, people don't always make changes all at once. Sometimes there's some backsliding, but uh, you have to, you know, the charting is one way that you can evaluate. Are you meeting your goals or not? Are you writing down a planned number of drinks, and are you sticking with those, or are you exceeding those? Maybe your plan was too strict. This is a problem sometimes. Uh, the plan was too strict. You tried to make too big a change at once. Maybe you need to relax your plan a little bit, or maybe your plan wasn't strict enough. Maybe you needed a stricter plan. But always try to evaluate and see that you're going in the direction that you want to go. Number 13, 
practice damage control as needed. This is something that uh, Alan Marlatt, our friend, has called uh, relapse prevention. We call it damage control. Um, if your goal is to quit drinking and you have one drink, does this mean one drink means one drunk? Do you have to continue drinking? Do you have to go on a bender? Do you have to keep drinking for the next 20 years without taking a stop? Or is it possible to take one drink, say, oh, I slipped, this was not good, but I want to get back on the horse right away, and uh, I don't want to keep drinking, I don't want to get drunk just because I had one drink. Um, Alan Marlette refers to this as the abstinence violation effect. When people, um, they, they make a plan to quit drinking, they have a slip, they drink, and they feel so guilty that they feel terrible, and the only way to deal with the terrible feelings is to drink more alcohol. And uh, Marlette says, no, you don't have to feel guilty. Um, some slips are normal. It's, it's very common. Don't beat yourself up. Just start over again. And it's true whether you're trying to abstain completely or whether you're trying to stick with a moderate plan or some limits and you go over your limits. You don't have to beat yourself up and say you're a terrible person because you weren't capable of sticking with your limits. It's, it's all, all right. You can forgive yourself. You can go back to the original plan you wanted to go to. And this is what we call damage control. And don't let, you know, a little slip turn into a big relapse. Don't let, don't let it get out of hand. And uh, number 14, of course, is get back on the horse. If, after you've had, if you've had some slip up, you know, just go back to your plan and get back and pursue it some more. And number 15, you can graduate from hands, you can stick around, or you can uh, come back after you've left. Um, unlike uh, AA, where, where people are told that they need to go to meetings for the rest of their life, if they ever stop going to meetings, they're going to die. Um, Hems realizes that uh, lots of people decide that they want to move on, that they want to uh, they want to get a life. And the whole purpose of Hems is not to have people go to Hems and be involved in Hems forever and make this central to their entire life. What we would like instead is for people, you know, to resolve the problems, get better, to get a life, you know, to get employment, to get improvements, get in social life, get uh, married, whatever, move on. Become less involved with hams if you want to stop completely. That's okay. We do like it when our old timers come back and visit, but um, it's really important. You know, you shouldn't be stuck in recovery forever. You should get recovered, and you should move on and have a life. That's what it's all about: is having a real life. Number sixteen: We ask our people to praise themselves for every success that they make. Um, Self-praise is really important. It's really important to affirm who you are. It's really important to affirm that you are doing well. Pat yourself on the back. There's nothing wrong with this. Every time you succeed in some small step in changing your drinking in a positive manner, uh, please, please uh, pat yourself on the back for this. And number 17 is to move at your own pace. You don't have to do it all at once. I've mentioned, you know, 16 elements here. You don't have to do them all. You can just do one if you want to do find one. You don't have to do them all. You can, and there's a lot. You don't have to do them all at once. So don't feel overwhelmed that there's all these things to do. We've got a lot of worksheets to help you uh, help you achieve your change goals. But you know, don't feel overwhelmed. Just uh, do a little bit at a time. Do what feels what you feel capable of doing, and uh, just uh, keep moving on and uh, moving ahead as you go. Um, and how long will it take you to change your drinking habits? 
Well, you know, there's uh, some people that sell 21-day programs say it takes 21 days. Some people that are selling 28-day programs say it takes 28 days. Uh, the reality, the research um, shows it usually takes a lot longer than that. Um, there's some research by uh, people who are changing for good. I um, can't remember the names off the top of my head. But uh, they did a lot of research on people who were changing their smoking habits. They found uh, milestones at like three months, six months, a year, and two years. You know, um, people stayed stayed free from cigarettes for three months were uh, seeming to reach a certain plateau, and they were less likely to go back. And people had hit at six months and one year. So, uh, you know, the longer you have changed your habits for the better, the more they will become natural to you and the easier they will be to maintain. So don't expect, you know, everything's going to be a miracle. It happens in a week or in three weeks or in four weeks. You know, it's a long process. You know, people, if you stop drinking or if you uh, start having lots of abstinence days, it's very common to have lots of alcohol cravings, you know, for a long time. Uh, but uh, they get weaker and weaker the longer that you uh, maintain your plan. And, they don't have to rule your life. They, uh, you know, there are ways to uh, deal with alcohol cravings. You know, because remember, they don't last forever. You know, they last about five minutes. If you can just watch that craving, you know, peak and then go away, and you can watch it pass, and you say to yourself, "I know it's going to pass. I'm just going to watch it." Um, just using pure willpower alone, that's not necessarily the best way to deal with things. When people just sit there in a chair and do nothing but say, I won't drink, I won't drink, I won't drink. Pretty soon it's I drink, I drink, and, you know, people drink. And it's, uh, it's not the way to do it. There are lots of other ways to deal with your cravings for alcohol. Uh, some of the best ones uh, we can find from dialectal behavior therapy, which wasn't originally created for alcohol, but it gives us a lot of good ideas about how to deal with uh, alcohol cravings. You can do things like distract yourself. You can distract yourself by sweeping a floor. Uh, this is right out of Zen Buddhism, but it is something really good. Sweep a floor with all your attention on sweeping the floor. Make tea and with concentrating all your attention on making tea. And you will find that you're not thinking about alcohol while you're doing this if you are totally intent on making, on making tea on sweeping your floor, you've distracted yourself. There are other ways to distract yourself. You can go to a movie. Uh, you can turn on something on television. Uh, but anything uh, distracting is a good way to do it. Another way is self-soothing. Find something that uh, you like that's good. Um, ice cream is a way of self-soothing. You know, sex with, with yourself or with a partner is a way of self-soothing. It's a distraction from your craving for alcohol, and it's a self-soothing that makes you feel better, and you don't need the alcohol as much. Um, so these are some ways to deal with craving from alcohol, craving for alcohol that we borrowed from dialectal behavior therapy. Um, you can also uh, there are some that we borrowed from rational recovery. Uh, rational recovery has a technique called avert. It's addictive voice recognition technique. Uh, you uh, recognize this voice in your head, this urge to drink. It's, call it the beast. Call it the voice of the beast and recognize it's separate from yourself. Uh, Jack Trempe, who started the Rational Recovery, talks about this as being 
the beast brain. And he says, uh, you know, this is the beast brain. This is your primitive part of your brain that's telling you to drink. And, you know, the rational part of your brain, the, the cortex, is where your rational thinking is. It's the new, newly developed part of the brain. And this is the part where you have the rational reasons that tell you why you don't need to drink. Now, the rational cortex can always uh, overcome the beast brain. Just the rational cortex can start saying to itself, all right, beast brain, I am not going to listen to you. I don't care how much you uh, tell me to drink. You can just go F yourself because I'm not going to do it. You know, you can tell me all you want. You know, I'm not going to do it. I refuse. And uh, this is... Uh, a really basic summary of the Averts technique, which uh, you can find in Jack Trempe's books, uh, The Small Book. Also, he's got one called Rational Recovery. And uh, since we are into talking about some other things than hams now, um, there are quite a few alternatives out there for people who want to quit drinking complete, quit drinking alcohol completely. Um, one we were going to talk about Tonight was Life Ring. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to our guest. He didn't manage to uh, make it in to show up, so I'm just uh, going on a little bit. But uh, Life Ring is a completely secular organization. It doesn't have any higher power. It doesn't say that you need to declare that you are powerless. It has meetings of people that get together and talk about strategies for not drinking alcohol. Another one that's very similar was started by James Christopher, called SOS. It's Seculars on Sobriety. Also, people get together, talk about not drinking alcohol. There is SMART Recovery. SMART stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. This is another one about not drinking at all. Uh, SMART uses a lot of cognitive behavioral tools, and uh, the cognitive behavioral tools um, help you to not drink alcohol. Uh, there are others out there. Women for Sobriety I, was created basically uh, by Jean Kirkpatrick, who believed that women needed a different approach than men, and that though AA might fit men well, it did not fit women well, she thought uh, women needed a different approach, which was based not on breaking down big egos, but on affirmations and uh, building up weak egos. She found that uh, many women were drinking Excessively because, you know, they, not because they have big egos, but because they have weak egos. This is all about self-affirmation. Um, there are 13 affirmations to uh, women for sobriety. And uh, people uh, involved in the report is very helpful to them. Uh, women for sobriety approach. Um Uh, other things that you can do to deal with negative emotions. Um, thought stopping is one thing. It's a cognitive behavioral technique. When you have negative thoughts that you know will lead you into depression, into anxiety, or uh, into other negative emotions that will uh, lead you to want to drink, you can learn how to recognize these thoughts and tell these thoughts when you see them coming. Tell them stop. And uh, when when you stop the thoughts, it can help you to stop the emotions from occurring, like depression, like anxiety, that lead people to drink. Um, affirmations, what I was talking about before, women for sobriety, 
Um, here's some affirmations that we've written in our book. Um, I have the power to change my life for the better. I have the power to change my drinking for the better. I see we have a guest that's come in. I uh, think this might be B.D. Stout. Uh, hello, Dee Dee. Is that you? Hi, Ken. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, our first guest somehow didn't make it in, so I've been talking for 25 minutes. That's what's going on. I was listening and thought that it wasn't quite what was going to happen, but you know, I was getting prepared and running around and doing a few other things, too, so I didn't get a chance to catch it all. If I'd known, I would have called and helped you out earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is our guest for the evening, Dee Dee Stepp, who is the author of Coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming, Looking for Harm Reduction in a 12-Step World. It's a book that has a lot of biographies of uh, people who work in harm reduction. Some have uh, started as harm reduction workers. Some have come from a 12-step background. Uh, tell us a little more about your book. Well, I think you described it well. I mean, what I was really trying to accomplish with this book was to begin to change culture through storytelling. Uh, I'm a big believer in story or narrative as a way to help people shift. And it's been my experience with all the terrific harm reduction books that we've had from, of course, the now unfortunately late Alan Marlatt and many others, Pat Dennings, uh, who affected me quite a bit. And they were wonderfully rich and clinical and technical, but there wasn't anything in there that helped me to figure out how to make this shift. How do I go from being fully immersed in the 12-step Minnesota medical model to harm reduction? And do I need a shift to do those? to do that you know what what is the shift do I need all those kinds of questions as I've been teaching uh, college for the last 20 years on this particular subject uh, and in various ways over those 20 years uh, that was the thing that I kept hearing in the classroom from my students all the time and from participants in some of my trainings so you think uh, it that 12-step uh, approach and harm reduction approach can be compatible? I think they are compatible. I think that the problem is that 12-step has changed. The 12-step that I grew up with and that I love, I sometimes don't recognize or don't know where it is anymore. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. And so my desire was to go back and look at this rich history of 12-step that we have and that I was privy to as I had connections to Bill Wilson himself, you know, the co-founder of AA, mm -hmm. and thought within that, is this really right? Is what I believed and what I heard all those years, was that really accurate? And I discovered that it was not accurate. You know, obviously, there are some pieces of it that were, but there was a lot of it that wasn't being talked about. Uh, the, the wonderful stories about how Bill Wilson wrote to the developers of Methadone, uh, mm -hmm. Nicewander and Dole, and said, gosh, this is amazing. When are you going to develop something like this for alcohol? And, you know, I about dropped my teeth. I had never heard anything like that and thought, why don't we talk about that? Why is it that AA as an, uh, a group or as a 
larger fellowship even takes a stand on methadone. I thought that was against the principles that I grew up with in AA. You don't take stands on outside issues. So to have the central office say methadone is a drug and we don't use drugs, you know, that sort of a statement. And here had, Bill Wilson had actually stated, no, that, that's a good thing. You know, we, we want those kinds of things. Um, really surprised me. Well, I think I've read some uh, biographies of Bill Wilson, and he was uh-huh. something of a loose cannon. Sometimes he uh, <laughs> often advocated things that you know the uh, the general service office wasn't too happy with. Uh, he was talking about LSD therapy and vitamin yes. D therapy and things. And they kind yeah. of I I remember at one point they said, "Don't write any of this on AA's letterhead." Right. Right. And he did. I mean, he was in at least a 10-year depression, I mean, what we would call it today, a clinical depression. And that was actually when he wrote the 12 by 12, as it's called, or the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And anyone who has read that book can hear that. It is so dark and so um, gloomy and, yet, I mean, very rich at the same time. It, that's not to be pejorative by any means. Mm-hmm. But it, it makes more sense given the context. Then to see uh, and hear more about his use of LSD and during those times. And he was not necessarily using it for his depression. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows he was using it, what we would call today, recreationally. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. And again, to me, that isn't blasphemy because Bill Wilson isn't a god. You know, well, he's a man. And he was a remarkable man, and being a human being, he made a lot of mistakes, and, you know, that's okay. That's okay. We don't need to have perfect leaders, and we don't need to have a perfect fellowship in AA either. I would just like it to be uh, a little kinder. (laughs) Well, you mentioned the 12 by 12, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and that does seem to be... uh, where some of these things became dogmatic. I know in a couple different, several different places there, he says, anyone who fails to work these 12 steps signs their own death warrant. Yeah. Well, and you're right. He was a bit of a loose cannon. When you look at the relationship between he and Dr. Bob, it's very sad that we lost Dr. Bob as early as we did because I think things would have been quite different. It was always Dr. Bob that was a bit more of the anchor for Bill, at least, uh, because Bill had a lot of grandiose ideas, and some of them were terrific, uh, but not all of them were, and he would go off on these tangents. He was also always seeking for different forms of spirituality. That, that was something that one of my longtime sponsors, um, Dr. Earl Marsh, who wrote the chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous called Physician Heal Thyself, and so he was obviously a physician, uh, and Earl went out on a lot of these treks to India and to other Asian countries to find more about spirituality back in the 40s and 50s, um, and would come back and then report to Bill on his findings. Bill was his sponsor for a period of time. And I, you know, so there were a lot of things that he was searching for, and periodically he would kind of put down these edicts. You know, this is the way it's going to be. And then he would change that. Mm -hmm. uh, One of my favorite stories from Doc Earl was listening to him tell me about the promises 
in the big book. And, of course, there's no, you can't look up something, you know, nowhere is it called The Promises. And mm-hmm. you, know, you can look it up. You have to know where it is in that book in order to uh, locate it. But when you do, and I, Doc Earl would say, you know, I told Bill not to write that shit. I told <laughs> him not to write that. You know, and it would just crack yeah, me up. He said, yeah, he said, this was terrible. Don't believe that. Don't believe it, baby. He always called me baby. <laughs> Don't believe it, baby. You know, it was that kind of bit. And he said, it's okay. Bill is human. You don't have to believe everything he writes, everything he says, or everything that AA says or writes. In fact, Earl's favorite line was, "All time, old-timers are all full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do what feels right. Do what you think is best for you. Well, I, I like know, that. Mm-hmm. I know many of my colleagues, I mean, in harm reduction, mm-hmm. and I, I learned harm reduction by doing needle exchange. I've talked about this a lot. I wanted to bring harm reduction to alcohol. I knew it was a good mm-hmm. idea. Where can you go study it? Well, the only place to go study it was to go volunteer at the needle exchange in Minneapolis and hand out mm-hmm. needles and, you know, sure. and do what they were doing and see what they were doing. And it was a great experience for me. And mm-hmm. I found that uh, many of my mentors and colleagues, you know, were 12-step members. Uh, they had been involved in harm reduction first because they were consumers. They were right. uh, go, they were going to needle exchange themselves. Then they decided right. it's time to quit the heroin. The heroin's not a good thing. And they quit through Narcotics Anonymous. And mm-hmm. so they found that it was compatible for them. Mm-hmm. Great, exactly. Mm -hmm. I talk in the book, the very first interview that I did with a contributor for my book was Alan Clear. And Alan is the executive director for, uh, gosh, okay, I'm tired now. Help me out. Reduction Coalition. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What is the matter with me? For HRC, and he's in New York, obviously, because he's at the headquarters. And when we were doing the interview, I didn't know Alan very well. I had met him, I think, through Pat Denning, who I was just getting to know at that time. And we started the interview, had the tape rolling, and sort of the first thing out of his mouth was that he was in AA. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, you've got to be kidding me. What do you mean you're in AA? How are you in AA and also the executive director of HRC? And Don't you see any conflict in that? And he said, no, absolutely not. What in the world does one have to do with the other? I mean, I'm saving lives over on the one side so that maybe people can get to the other side. Works for me. Yeah, and I don't know if that was his British sensibility, you know, since the Brits and, well, a lot of the rest of the world looks at uh, addiction in a very different way than we do here in the States. Uh, but he had never felt any strangeness, we'll just put it that way, at those concepts. He felt they were completely compatible, and he was walking proof of it. Well, what happened uh, with uh, us um I, as I said, I worked. Uh, I was a volunteer yeah. at the Needle Exchange in Minneapolis. Uh, I invited the executive director, the former executive director, who I studied mm-hmm. under, to be a guest in our chat room one night. And, okay. You know, the whole time I had volunteered there, she had never mentioned twelve steps or any of that once because you don't do that in Needle Exchange. You don't right. and you don't try to convert people. But we right. had her as a guest in our chat room, and she had changed jobs. She was now working for Sobriety High School. 
And I said, well, how, how did this come about? She says, oh, I'm in Narcotics Anonymous. And I <laughs> find it totally compatible. I was like, oh, I never knew you were in Narcotics Anonymous. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, speaking of needle exchange, I, for many years at City College here in San Francisco, I've had my uh, intro class, which is the Drug and Al- Drugs and Society is what it's called. I had them go to needle exchange um, as either individuals or in pairs, and just observe, just observe for an hour or so, and then go back and chat about it or write a paper or come in, and then we would have a talk about it in the classroom as well. And I found that that was the single most important exercise for students to do to change people's thinking about both needle exchange and harm reduction. And I know that because I asked them in an evaluation at the end of every semester, and that's what they would tell me. And I thought, so I think once again it was for me that idea of the individual stories that is so powerful that helps people to relate. You could say sort of like people do in any sort of a a fellowship of any kind, whether it be a a religious fellowship, including an AA meeting or an NA meeting, or if it's something like smart recovery, you know, anytime you're getting any group of people together and they're sharing what they do, who they are, Mm -hmm. things change, things happen. I want to know, um, I'm going back to my own experiences now. As long as we're telling stories, we might as well. Um, Uh Uh-huh. You know, my experiences with going to AA were of being told, well, if you don't believe in God, it means you haven't drank enough and you need to go out and drink some more until you suffer some more, and then you'll come back crawling on your knees begging us for God. Right. uh, That was not very attractive to me to be told that. And, uh, I mean, we see that there is some ways that uh, with, around narcotics, that people have been able to reconcile harm reduction with uh, with steps. Can we do it with alcohol? I mean, is there any chance of it? I don't see it right now when I see people in AA groups for alcohol. They're like, so totally. There's no such thing as controlled drinking. Right. Right. And a lot of that, I know, even for myself, when I was newly sober and and abstinent from other things, that I want, I was holding on so tightly, you know, so hard that I couldn't hear anything other than the black and white message because I was so afraid. Mm-hmm. If I wavered at all in my thinking, my fear was that that life uh, would be right back in front of me again. And, and I was really willing to do whatever it took to not have that life anymore. So I I really appreciate and understand, I think, um, why a lot of people hold on so hard and then out of fear become almost violent in their opposition, you know, true zealots, if you will, you know, uh, pushing back so hard on any other kind of, op- of opinion. I have gone through this over the years in the classroom where students have gone back to other faculty and to the director of our certificate program and informed her that I was saying things like uh, that they should try using a little bit of heroin or that I was AA bashing or, 
you know, and I said, isn't this interesting? Uh, why would I tell anybody to use a little bit of heroin or anything else? Uh, that's mm-hmm. not what I ever do in the classroom. And why would I AA bash when I'm a member? That doesn't make any sense at all. So clearly folks are not hearing what I'm saying. And so I had to really learn to stop and sort of say, so what did you just hear me say? My Penn and Teller episode, uh, my appearance on the Penn and Uh Teller show, that really sent people crazy. Uh, We actually had death threats as a result of that. There was apparently more feedback from that episode than there was any other one that they did except for the one on the Bible, <laughs> which mm-hmm. some might say this is equivalent <laughs> in another way. Right? It, it just really stirs up those deep emotions. And, and again, I think it's that fear. So for me, working in a profession and as a trainer and a teacher, in helping new counselors or people who want to become counselors, I spend a great deal of time trying to help them to separate out their recoveries, whatever that means, right? You know, it doesn't have to be drug and alcohol, from working with people and learning how their own recoveries can actually be harmful to the people that they're working with. You know, because it can skew the, the... the vision that I have, it can cause me to think that you have a problem and maybe you don't have a problem, not in the way that I think you have a problem. And now I'm not hearing you anymore, Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things. So, you know, for me, again, I think that's why I go back to those stories of how do we begin to shift the culture so that we can at least have a civil conversation even if nobody changes their mind, I mean, that to me, I mean, that would be great, don't get me wrong, but that's secondary to me. To me, it's about let's have the conversation in the first place and do it in a way that isn't harmful to anybody, you know, but, but it's respectful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it would be nice if we could recognize that there are many different approaches. I mean, right. I mean, when Martin Luther broke off from the Catholic Church, you know, that was just pure animosity, and it's almost like right. that now with, uh, you know, AA being the orthodoxy and everything else being, you know, the Protestant uh, heretics. Right, the heathens. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, um, that's very true. But, you know, I, for my close friends that work in harm reduction that are also 12-step members, you know, I have no problem, you know, respecting their choices to do mm-hmm. things that way. Yes, if mm-hmm. this works for you, and they have no problem saying, you know, if you want to go down a different path that works for you, go ahead and do that. They don't. Right. Uh, but there's so much. I mean, once again, back to the 12 by 12. You know, these. This, if you don't work the 12 steps, you sign your own death warrant. People hear these things in the meetings, and you know, take them right. to heart. And uh, right. The, you know, I've had so many people in my experiences when I was trying to seek some help that, you know, instead of harm reduction, they were advocating harm increase. They kept saying, you haven't hit bottom right. yet. You have to go out and drink more and hit bottom. And it's like, that's you right. have to suffer more. You have to have more bad things happen. And that's not the way to do it, you know. That's right. You know, one of my most unfavorite lines is, you know, the one that clearly you haven't had enough pain. hmm mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I spend an awful lot of time working in trauma 
and lecturing. I'm now considered, you know, a bit of a um, of a trauma specialist. And in doing that, I always ask people, so if you have found chemicals of any kind to be helpful to to you and to lessen your trauma symptoms, and I tell you you need to go have more pain, what are you likely to do? And, you know, they all say in unison, right, well, I'm probably going to use again or, you know, whatever the behavior is. Mm -hmm. And I go, exactly. That's exactly right. That is what people do. Why are we surprised by that? And it certainly doesn't mean that the person isn't willing or ready, whatever you want to, how you want to quantify that, to make a change in their life. It's wonderful that we have things like motivational interviewing, which, you know, I've got to give a plug for since I spend most of my life in that world. That's my real expertise. Um, And there are ways to have the conversation now with people that is much more respectful. Uh, And Scott Miller's work, you know, Mm -hmm. another person that I've studied with for years and years and years. And, and looking at people's strengths rather than all of their needs all the time. And we're seeing some of that being reflected in hospital work as well as other areas of change, including counseling. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's taking a long time, absolutely. And it does feel sometimes to me like we make a couple of steps forward and then we get yanked up by the, our choke chain and pulled back. Well, it's difficult um, to uh, bring the new ideas in. I'm scheduled in October uh, to uh, do a poster presentation for the alcohol and substance abuse providers of uh, New York State. So hopefully I'll be presenting about our harm reduction book for alcohol, and hopefully that uh, a lot of people will see this, a lot of people will take home flyers, and maybe uh, they'll buy the book and start using it in their treatment programs, you know. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where the next place to go. I mean, that's part of the reason I've been teaching in a certificate program all these years. I've been at City College. I'm I'm getting ready to step down at the end of May, but I've been there for 10 or 12 years, something like that, in teaching directly with people who are heading into that field or who are already working in that field but now have to get certified because the state of California is requiring that. Finally, thank God, right? Yeah. We we need to have some education to work with people around these kind of health issues that are very serious. And, you know, it's been a struggle, but I've been very gratified that so many students have helped me to grow, and I apparently have also helped them to do that as well. And then they go back into their programs and they try to make some changes. And even if the program doesn't change, the, the clinician has, and so they're working with their caseload in a very different way, and that makes the difference. So to me, it's you know that much as we tell our clients we work with, change usually happens slowly, you know, baby step by baby step, and mm-hmm. I think that's also true of a culture shift or an agency change that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That we certainly have a long ways to go. Well, harm reduction, you know, we need to. Uh get the word out. Harm reduction means everything that reduces harm. Quitting a behavior that causes harm is a way to reduce the harm. Right. That's, and, well, I always tell folks that the ultimate harm reduction is abstinence. So it's always been part of harm reduction. But I can tell you, when I was 
taking my own drug and alcohol classes when I was becoming certified as a drug and alcohol counselor. And that was, I think, about the same time I got my master's. So, you know, I was getting different kinds of education. And they taught me two things about harm reduction. And this was in Berkeley. And I was taught that harm reduction was methadone, which is terrible. Yeah. You don't use methadone. And that it was allowing people to use. And we don't do that either. That's enabling. So that's it. Move on. Okay. <laughs> it, looks like Stan, it looks like Stanton is ready to join us. I want to bring him uh, on the air. Oh, good. Hello, Stanton. How are you? Hi, Didi. Is that really you? It is. Hi, sweetie. <laughs> Hi. Great to hear from you. Hey, it's good to I'm hear from be you. A little, uh, I'm going to be a little... Uh, Cut to the chase tonight, um, and I'm going to hopefully use good motivational interviewing techniques. <laughs> Do you remember the story you told me once about running into a prominent 12-step advocate in a far-off country, and he berated would be too strong a word. He lectured you about how great the 12 steps were for his, him and his family. Do you recall that story? I'm not sure I do. You had breakfast with this person in Budapest, Hungary? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. It was Sophia. Yes. Yep. And you said nothing about either motivational interviewing or harm reduction to that person. How come? I did say something about motivational interviewing because that's why I was there in Sophia. So I did. Um, we were there at uh, what's our annual conference for those of us who are in the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. So he was aware of that, yes, because he was quite curious so you did, about what you, we did. Oh, you did give him, you did fill him in then on the opposing point of view or well, a, a different I, point of view from the Yes, I mean a little bit. I tried. <laughs> you, know, you know, I want to be respectful in one way. And and it was also five o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous, but it was we were having a conversation and I yes we did definitely drop in a lot about motivational interviewing. I don't believe that I probably said the words harm reduction per se, but I certainly did talk about and talk freely about how I saw things, as well did the other my colleague who was there with me too. Uh, who's well, that's from good. another area. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because when you look at the world at large, mm -hmm. um, there are actually a lot more people who reduce drinking than who quit, if you believe in the national sure. surveys by NISARC. Um, there are obviously many, many more people, 88% of people who recover, don't actually do so through AA or the 12 Steps. Yet all we ever right. hear about are AA and the 12 steps. There's right. some kind of disparity in a willingness to express. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, one of my biggest complaints is to any television show that ever talks about drinking, you know, where one of the characters has a drinking problem. My favorite one is Law and Order, you know, where several of the characters have had drinking problems. But they all go, they all go the abstinence route. And they all go to AA. And I always it's say, a rare you know, case where, 
Right. Why can't we just have one person who just goes to smart recovery or something else? It could even be abstinence, but could it be something else other than AA? <laughs> yeah. Well, I do know movies um, like The Verdict where uh, Paul Newman does seem to become a controlled drinker, and he certainly doesn't go to AA. I do know yeah. movies that sneak that point of view in, and, and they're almost apologetic. But I guess yeah. what I'm... What I think about is that many people in the field, sometimes even people who strongly believe in harm reduction, I'm thinking of another very prominent psychologist who was in an overnight camping trip, and the other members of the party said they were big into recovery and they were Mm -hmm. uh, AA clinicians, and she declined to speak there. And it's always hard to be a minority or feel that you're a minority, but I guess... Uh, what I'd like to talk to listeners and people who are actively engaged in the field about are the need to testify about your own beliefs. Mm-hmm. I'll tell it when I'm I'm actually uh, I'm Jewish, and mm-hmm. uh, when I grew up, I was taught that when people came to me, you know, Seventh Day Adventists or or Latter Day Saints, and they would proselytize. That my uh-huh. job wasn't to shun them or to ignore them. It was to speak forthrightly from my own mm-hmm. point of view. And mm-hmm. remarkably, quite recently, even in the last couple of years, I've actually been proselytized in professional settings by Christians. Hmm. And their assumption is that, of course, they know the right way. Right. And they, total, they totally disrespect my own background. And so I had to pretty forcefully present that if I return to any religion, because I'm kind of falling away this as a Jew, it would have uh-huh. to be to Judaism. And uh-huh. so I wonder how many people, even those who write me emails and say, oh, you know, I'm so happy that you speak out, and, you know, yeah. I'm here and I'm there, or I'm in a class, and all the people in the class believe X or Y. I always say the same thing to them. Why don't you speak out? about your point of view or your own experience. In many cases, they've recovered without AA or they left AA or they've moderated their drinking. Yeah. It's great that you're... And sometimes when they're praising me, I almost feel as though they're saying, thank God you're expressing my point of view for me. Right, and therefore I don't have to do it. <laughs> is it when, there's, when there's this perception of a cultural majority, I almost think of those studies where they convince college students, they make them realize... They think that everybody in college is a heavy drinker, but they presented them to the norms that it's not actually like that. People perceive this majority out there because AA has been so, and 12-7ers have been so encouraged to speak out assertively that everybody else sort of takes the side stage or the backstage. So I guess if there's one little point in this message, it's that anybody who hears this or anybody in the field in a way that you would endorse, I know, should speak mm-hmm. out, not to put anybody, you don't have to put anybody else down. You right. only have to do three things. You have to express what you believe and know to be true. Mm-hmm. You have to tell the other party that not everybody feels the same way that they do. Mm-hmm. And you really ought to say to them, as you say to your students and the clinicians in training, you know it's not respectful in dealing with other people or clients to impose your point of view that you may believe very strongly on other mm-hmm. people. 
Yeah. Hey, I want to go on to one other thing that you uh, told me. Okay. Um, which is, a, <laughs> I think, a big plus. I hope it's not too personal. Sometimes Uh-oh. I go to a conference, and there's a 12-step person there, and they talk to me about 12 steps and everything like that. Okay. I always ask them something. I always mm-hmm. ask them about their children. Hmm. And, and several times I run into people who say to me, uh, well, my children, they're just regular people, normal drinkers. They haven't really had big alcohol problems. Uh-huh. And I say, that's the most important thing you've ever accomplished. Instead of your telling me all kinds of 12-step bromides and berating mm-hmm. me with all this stuff I've heard a million times before, I want to know about the miracle whereby you transformed uh, an addicted or a recovering background into your own children just being, in this regard, normal. So I, right. I, hope, I hope you don't mind my saying that you're one of the people who's accomplished that. No, and no, that when, thank you. And, and not only that, I, I hope we don't all burst into tears when I say this, but I remember you saying to me, when you asked your son how to become like a regular old social drinker, he said, because you love me so much, Mom. Yeah. Come on now, Dee Dee. Yeah. If all you have to do is print that on a card and they're going to let you into heaven that way. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, but don't I, you agree you know, that that's I the do. greatest miracle? You've had some I of do. your own ups and downs. You had a struggle with recovery. You went, as you said, kicking and screaming from 12 steps to harm reduction. Yep. And you made your li- son's life, I- I'm sure he has his own fun to deal with, you've eliminated that entire blockade, that whole, uh, all the years it took for you to come to grips with that, you've made that all a non-issue for him. How the yeah. hell did you do it? Well, you know that I think what he said is the only thing I can go on, you know, that he he knew that he was loved. And I am a firm believer that love can do it. You know, that that really, it's not that that solves the problem. I think that's the way we like to talk about it in a romantic Hollywood kind of way. That's not it. It's that it's the love that's the basis. It's the foundation of a good relationship that then allows the conversation to happen. I'm sorry, you know, the uncomfortable. I think you must also have avoided, like some therapists fail to do, Placing all of your baggage and fears and concerns, some of which you've described tonight mm-hmm. around alcohol and substances, you mm-hmm. you were able to create a separation in that issue, just like you recommend the therapist. Yeah. You know, your job is not to impose your fears on clients, it's to work with them. You seem, I think, I'm guessing, I've never met your son, that you seem to have been able to place yourself in a motherhood position without imposing on your son all those kind, that baggage and those fears. Do you think? I'd say I'd say that's true halfway. In the beginning, ah. that was not so true. When I was in my twelve-step zealot days, you know, then I was very scared for him. Then, when I began to shift, when I got better educated or more more fully educated, uh, and learned some of the other facts, uh, like from Alan. You know, and and you and other people came into my life, then I was able to bring that pendulum back and say, you know, it's I could ask him questions in curiosity. I think that's what motivational interviewing has taught me so well. 
Yeah, so I can could let him answer out of his own place. Ken yeah, has to break exactly. in now and, and shut us up, I think, Didi, two big talkers like ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Shoot, oh my Ken. God. Okay, next week our guest will be Alan Clear of the Harm Reduction Coalition and Stasia Koster of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Thank you all. Good night. Thank you. Bye, guys. What fun. Bye, Stanton. Bye. <laughs> I've got to call later. you. <laughs> yeah. Not I know. I owe you 